a week and a half ago, October the 31st, at the University of California, Berkeley, the Student Senate discussed and voted on a bill to express opposition to our federal government's attempt to define a person's sex and gender based on their biology at birth. One of the students on the Senate is Isabella Chow. She's 20 years old, a junior, majoring in business and music. When it came time to vote, Ms. Chow read a statement explaining her decision to abstain from voting. She said, discrimination is never, ever okay. She condemned those who were bullies and bigots toward the LGBTQ community, particularly those who claimed to be Christians and were bullies or bigots toward the gay community. She said that she was a Christian and that her God, quote, assigns immeasurable value to and desires to love each and every human being, including those in the LGBTQ plus community. And then she said, as a Christian, I believe that certain acts and lifestyles conflict with what is good and right and true. I believe that God created male and female at the beginning of time and designed sex for marriage between one man and one woman. For me, to love another person does not mean that I silently concur when at the bottom of my heart I do not believe that your choices are right or best for you as an individual. And she ended her statement with this. I again affirm with all my heart that each one of you in this room deserves nothing less than respect, acknowledgement, legal protection, and love, no matter your beliefs. I humbly ask that you extend the same respect and acknowledgement to my community. We Christians are here to love and serve this campus in the way that we best know how. Thank you for understanding, and please feel free to reach out to me at any time if you want to discuss this or anything else. Well, that was a week and a half ago, October 31st. By this past Friday, over a thousand students had signed a petition demanding Ms. Chow resign from the student senate. On social media, she's been called a horrible person and a mental imbecile. The campus political parties that helped get her elected have severed ties with her. And the famous student newspaper at UC Berkeley, it's called the Daily Californian, ran an editorial critique of her while refusing to publish her self-defense. In an interview, Chow said, no matter how much I tried to say that I can love you and still disagree with you, people still interpret my disagreement with being a bigot and a hater. So this past Wednesday night, at the regularly scheduled student senate meeting, the room was filled to maximum capacity. Over 300 students and former students showed up. There were banners on the walls demanding her resignation, and the senate allowed an open mic night. For three hours, until almost midnight, student after student spoke one by one at the microphone. Of more than 100 people who got a chance to speak, only three spoke in favor of Mrs. Chow. 
Through it all, Isabella Chow just listened. She didn't say anything while they hung over her head a banner reading, Senator Chow, resign now. Now, before I go any further, I want to be very clear about something. If you are gay or bisexual or transgender or you experience some version of gender dysphoria, God loves you. This church loves you, and you are welcome here. And I know that the history of the church, when it comes to sexual, sexuality, is disfigured by shame and hypocrisy. What's recently come to light in Pennsylvania is terrible. Too many churches have made serious mistakes on gender and sex. Too many churches have, have, have practiced blatant and hypocritical double standards, and the awful persecution and mistreatment of the LGBTQ community is a part of the church's history, not to mention our woefully inadequate understanding of the impact of abuse on sexual behavior. Our church has just spent nine weeks on Sunday evenings taking these issues very seriously, so please keep that in mind as I say this. When it comes to sex, God created us and calls us to faithfulness in marriage between a man and a woman and to celibacy outside of that. And yet, this is not always understood. Isabella Chow knows it, and she shared it in a winsome, respectful, humble, and loving way. And yet one of her critics said what so many of them believed, that for all of her talk about love and kindness, Miss Chow was playing games. Behind her charade of love was mere hatred. Now, if you were Isabella Chow, how would you respond? As you listen to me telling the story, what were you thinking? What were you feeling for those of you who are Christians and you hold the Christian view of gender and sex? What does it provoke inside of you to hear about someone being mistreated, misunderstood, mocked, marginalized, and persecuted for expressing that view in a loving and gentle way? Have you ever experienced an act of injustice because you were a Christian? How should a Christian respond to discrimination against Christians? Listen again to these words from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which is coming upon you to test you as though this were some strange thing that was happening to you. Now that's not always true. For centuries here in America, it was a surprise. But it's once again true for us. Things are changing. So don't be surprised. If you're a Christian, you've got to stop being surprised. Our society is changing. Don't be surprised when you're vilified and slandered and mocked. Peter wrote those words at a time when Christians, when their values and their way of life was very out of step with the surrounding Roman culture. 
In that setting, you could not be a Christian and remain unrecognized. Here in the West, we've forgotten this. For many centuries, our societies have been largely shaped by the Judeo-Christian ethic. And so from the very beginning of our nation's history, Christian values and the Christian way of life, generally speaking, has not conflicted very sharply with our surrounding culture. But things are changing. The context of 1 Peter is becoming our context. We no longer have to abstract what he's saying and to translate it into a different setting. It goes straight into our setting. More than it did for my father and his grandfather. And we have Bishop Andudu and Jalila and their family living among us. Reminding us that there are places in this world where living as a Christian means living daily with the threat of persecution. And as our society becomes increasingly secular... We must hear once again God's word from 1 Peter. In our secular age, unjust suffering must stop surprising us. And furthermore, listen to verse 13. Not only should we stop being surprised, verse 13 says, we should celebrate. You are sharing the sufferings of the Messiah. Then when his glory is revealed, you will celebrate with real exuberant joy. So... When we do suffer, we should replace the anger of frustration with joy. Being made fun of because you're a Christian, being misunderstood, being accused, like Isabella Chow, of hate, this is not a reason for bitterness or despair or surprise. It is a reason for celebration. Now, it doesn't mean you celebrate that you're suffering. It's not like you enjoy suffering. What God is telling us in verse 13 is that when you live in a society that judges the gospel to be irrelevant or even evil, it's God's judgment that will ultimately stand, not that judgment from society. The Christian who stands fast and suffers for the gospel is responding to an eternal reality that will outlast the suffering you're going through. And it will outlast death and even history itself. And when you see that, when you can see that, you'll be able to rejoice. And that joy you experience. So look what he's doing. He's done two moves. He said, first of all, you can rejoice because the the way you're being judged is gone. It will fall away. And God's judgment is ultimate. And there will come a day when you will be vindicated. And you can rejoice in that. But he also says in verse 13, when you suffer unjustly for the name of Christ, in that moment, you are sharing the Messiah's suffering. And when you are in that place, when you can know those two things, here's what he says. Your joy is an hors d'oeuvre. It's a foretaste of the joy you will experience when Christ is known in all things and he is universally revealed and your faith is vindicated at last. 
Now look at verse 14. If you're insulted because of the name of the Messiah, you are blessed by God because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So those of you who suffer for Christ are blessed. But notice this isn't a, you know, suffering builds character. Yeah, that might be true. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it actually ruins character. But that's not at all what he's talking about here. This blessing is not in the suffering itself. This blessing is because the glorious spirit of Jesus will come and dwell in your midst when you suffer in this particular way. Now, this is really helpful because sometimes when a Christian suffers for the faith, it can be tempting to say, where is God? Have I done something wrong? Is this because God is not pleased with me? But what we're taught here is that first of all, in our increasingly secular age, as our society continues to embrace more and more fully the Enlightenment worldview, we should not be surprised when we suffer because of our faith in Christ. That's the first thing we learn. And the second is that when we do that, God's glorious spirit rests upon believers who suffer for the name of Jesus because, here's the catch, what he's saying is, it is only by the power of the Spirit that in that moment you can find the resolve and the strength to live an uncompromising life in a society that is hostile to Christ. So what he's saying is, look, sometimes people in America today who think about Christianity and they talk about the Holy Spirit, sometimes they always equate the Holy Spirit with some emotional feeling. But here he's saying, one of the ways you know you've got God's spirit living in you is in that moment of suffering, if you're able to endure, it's not because you're something, it's because inside of you is God's spirit. And so whether you feel that or not, if you're able to stand up, you can know the glorious spirit of Jesus is in your midst. That's a blessing, he says. In other words, your willingness and ability to refuse compromise, even when it means you suffer, that proves that God's Spirit is inside of you, transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, nobody likes to be mistreated, but the same Spirit of God who filled Jesus when he was mistreated fills the Christian who suffers for Jesus. Now look at verse 15. None of you, of course, should suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or, or even as a meddler, a busybody. Now look, if you're suffering because you're a punk, because you've done something bad, that's called self-imposed suffering. Like, that's not what he's talking about. There's a place for that, and some of you in this room have experienced it. <laughs> Mostly over here. I know you guys are good. <laughs> There's many different types of suffering. There's suffering from sickness. There's suffering because you've done a wrong thing. There's suffering because you've lost something. He's talking here about a very particular type of suffering. He's talking about suffering for the name of Christ. Verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Rather, give God the glory for that name. Now, this is really interesting. 
When you get put in a position like Isabella Chow, I mean, this is a campus of 40,000 students. This is in Berkeley. She's on the student senate. There's only 20 student senators. There was no way out for her as a Christian. When you get put in this position and you offer, like she did, an honest, winsome, respectful, humble, loving, and courageous account of the Christian view of sexuality and gender, or just pick whatever topic you get kind of thrown under the bus on. If you are misunderstood and mistreated and mocked for talking and living consistently with the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, don't be ashamed. I think this is the real help in this passage for us today. Let let me explain why. In that moment, just imagine Isabella Chow. Three hours of being yelled at for being hateful. People reading the stories of how they had been, they're, they're homosexual or transgender and they'd been mistreated and saying that you're the cause of this kind of stuff. Can you feel the pressure that she surely felt? Am I right? Have I missed this one? Am I adding to their pain? I mean, just look at the rivers of blood and the mountains of corpses caused by people who are so sure of their beliefs. Doesn't the 20th century show us the horrific destruction and violence that comes from dogmatic thinking? I mean, can you... You got to know if she wasn't thinking in those kind of ways in that moment, that that she's some sort of robot or just hard-hearted person. The attacks of September 11th, the Crusades, Jim Crow laws in America, the Holocaust, communism's destruction of more than 100 million people, the Rwandan genocide, the Darfur genocide, now the Nuba Mountain genocide, the list goes on and on. Shouldn't we learn from the 20th century to let morality be a private choice? Who am I to say what's right and wrong? Shouldn't, we, we shouldn't criticize other people's beliefs or lifestyles or their identity. Everyone should learn to tolerate other people and just take care of your own business. Surely this is one of our great struggles. Shouldn't. We learn from that. One of the primary critics of Isabella Chow said, she could have merely abstained, but she took it upon herself to go into this long dialogue talking about marriage between a man and a woman. Nobody asked her to explain her views. Can you imagine sitting there in that room, 300 people, jam-packed, standing room only, being yelled at about that? You didn't have to tell us what you think. You could have just abstained. Wouldn't you have felt the weight of that criticism? Wouldn't you have in that moment thought, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you feel the power of that? I think a strong temptation that Christians are facing today is the temptation to be ashamed about the very act of holding a view about morality. And if you can survive that temptation, then the next one is the temptation to not express it publicly. 
Because doing that causes problems. This is causing us to feel, I think, very keenly the temptation of believing that to express your moral view is synonymous with dominating and controlling others. It's a kind of pathology that violates people's dignity and identity. If you're so sure of your beliefs that the other person is wrong, isn't that already an act of violence? Teenagers, this is one of the biggest temptations you will face. The temptation to be ashamed of yourself for believing something about somebody else that offends them. And here he's saying to us, in that moment, when that temptation comes at you, don't be ashamed. Look, in our world, what this means is don't be ashamed of having moral views. Don't be ashamed of expressing them when somebody is wounded by it, if you've done it in this loving way. Obviously, if you're a jerk about it, you should be ashamed. But... But just the expression of it doesn't... We, this is the big temptation to feel ashamed of holding a moral view and of expressing it. Faith in Christ is nothing to be ashamed of. And Christ's views of right and wrong are nothing to be ashamed of. God is the creator of all things. And his ways are good and beautiful and true. And whether it's sexuality and gender or what we do with our money or what we do with our Sundays or what we believe about Jesus rising from the dead, the Christian faith is nothing to be ashamed of. And when you're accused of being dumb, a mental imbecile, a hater, a threat to society because of Jesus Christ. In that moment, when you feel shame sliding over you, resist it. How? He tells you how here. By giving glory to that name. In other words, when you're accused of being a Christian, you should be more excited that the name Christ was associated with you than what you're suffering. That is a glorious name. Who wouldn't want to be related to him? Now look at verse 17 and verse 18. The time has come, you see, for judgment to begin at God's own household. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous person is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, he makes another move here. What he's telling us is that, you know, earlier he said, replace surprise with joy. Replace shame with glory. But here he says we need to learn to replace the fear of being judged by others. We need to replace that fear with the fear of being judged by God. From God's perspective, the holiest, most loving person is still someone who needs to be rescued, is still someone so weighed down with sin that without the grace and mercy shown through Jesus, that rescue would not happen. 
When you face mistreatment for being a Christian, what will you do? Will you have the resolve and the stamina to persevere to the end? Or will the insults, the abuse, the misunderstanding, the ostracism, will this drive you to renounce the faith? To go quiet on the faith? This is what it means to say that judgment begins with God's household. It doesn't mean that God is being judgmental to you. See, our word judgment, it's, it's weird. It's, it's using the word judgment in the way that gold is judged. You could almost replace it with the word test. What he's saying is that the testing starts with the household of God. What he's saying is that in these moments, when you are being mistreated and misunderstood and mocked, your faith is about to be revealed. Do you have it or not? It's about to show up if you've got faith or not. Who was writing this letter? Peter. He's not writing from a place of arrogance. You see, he knows what it's like to be in a moment where you're put on the line because you're a Christian and to fail and your lack of faith to be revealed. He's not writing this as a stuck-up person, he's writing this from a place of saying, look, guys, these moments test us. These moments are the judgment of our faith or not. It shows up if we've got it or not. It means that in those moments of temptation to deny Christ, that is the moment of judgment. Will your faith be judged to be true? Or will it be revealed to be false? And so in those moments of overwhelming temptation, remember that those who reject the gospel of God will suffer much more than anything the Christian will endure during the persecutions of this life. He says in that moment, if none of the other stuff I've said helps you, let this help you. It is better to be judged by people than it is for God to come after you. He's saying you have to replace your fear of man with a fear of God. It is better to suffer a little embarrassment and hostility and pain now as a Christian than to become one of those who reject Christ and because of doing that, you will suffer much more later on. Now, when a Christian is facing this moment of fierce temptation... There's one more thing. Look at verse 19. Those who suffer according to God's will should entrust their whole lives to the faithful creator by doing what is good. So in these moments, we replace surprise with joy. We replace shame with giving glory to God. We replace our fear of people mocking us and mistreating us with a proper fear of God. And here he says one more thing. In this moment, do good. Not pray. 
not read your Bible. I mean, isn't that interesting that he says, look, hey, when you're suffering, you better be praying a lot. That's not what he says, right? When you're suffering, you better make sure you're going to church and Bible study and in small group and you got friends there to help you. He doesn't say all that. Is all that true? Yeah, but look, that's an easy one. What he says here, I mean, where he ends this thing is in a different place. He says, in those moments, do good. What is Isabella Chow's job in that moment when for three hours she's being humiliated, misunderstood, accused of terrible things? What is her job to do in that moment? To pray? No, he says her job is in that moment, do good. It is so easy to entrust our life to God when life is going well and things are good. But we have to learn to entrust our lives to God even when we are suffering unjustly. Now, how do you do that? How do you actually give your life, entrust your life to God when you're suffering unjustly? By doing good. Doing good is the act of entrusting your life to God. This doesn't mean just rule keeping or keeping your nose clean or not getting in trouble. Doing good is much more positive than that. It means bringing fresh goodness, fresh kindness, fresh love, fresh wisdom into the the community, into your family, into the lives of the people that we meet on the street. And when we do this, when when we, we do good in these moments, we're not saying, look at me, aren't I good? No, what we're saying is, God, I trust you. I'm going to keep doing the thing that's getting me persecuted. And by continuing to do the thing that's getting my teeth kicked in, that's my act of trusting you. By doing this in this moment, that is how I entrust you with my whole life. This is God, this is what I'm doing with the life you've given me. Even though I'm facing suffering, I will continue to be this sort of person that is provoking the suffering. I'll continue being that kind of person to your glory. When you suffer for God, the way you entrust your whole life to God is by continuing to do the very thing that is causing you pain. And in that, you're trusting God. You're trusting that his view is more important than this view that's clobbering you. You're trusting God that eternal kind of vindication is better than vindication in the moment. You're trusting God in all of these ways. This is the act of trust. It is to keep on doing the right thing. We're trusting in that moment that God is faithful. That he has not forgotten us. We're trusting, we are relying on him utterly at the most extreme point. And we're doing this by getting on with the task of bringing his light and his love into a world, even when it kicks it back in our face. 